We're going to continue this morning in the bigger series. And what we're talking about in this series, as you'll remember, is the fact that God is bigger than anything we can think or imagine. Remember, Alex started it with a great big cardboard box up here on the stage and said, that's who God is. And then he had a little box that represented what we can know about the bigger box. And the truth is we could put lots of the little boxes into the bigger box and never actually fill that big box up. And then he told us God is bigger than our doubts and our fears. Isn't that great news? Anybody got any doubts and fears in your life? Come on, you're going to have to work with me. There we go. Thank you. God's bigger than those. Last week he was talking about the fact that God is bigger than anything man can build. That God has a plan and a purpose for all of us individually, all of us together. And anything we can imagine, anything we think that our life is to be about, God is bigger than those things. And I might add, God is better. But today we're going to talk about God's bigger perspective. God's bigger perspective. Perspective is, the English word perspective comes from the Latin, two Latin words, the verb to see and the preposition through. So perspective means to see through. In other words, to get the big picture, to be able to see through details, to be able to see through things that aren't necessarily clear and get this great big picture. And when we have a perspective, it impacts how we see things. And how we see things impacts how we understand things to be, right? Our view of the world, which in turn influences both our behaviors and our actions. And so we're going to talk about God's bigger perspective today. And I want to anchor our conversation on a claim that's made by the God of Israel through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Take a look. God says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth... So my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The point of this message today is for us to understand that God sees things more clearly than we do. Let me say it again. God sees things more clearly than we do. To which your response should be, duh. But let me ask you truly, do we live like we understand this? It's a mental assent we'll give to the fact that God sees things differently than we do, but do we live like it? And what I want to do today for a short while is just have a discussion with you in light of three questions. The first is, do I accept that this is true? God's bigger perspective, yeah, I knew I was going to do that. God's bigger perspective, is it true? Do I trust it to be good? And do I experience this as beautiful? Because Those are the core virtues, right? Truth, goodness, and beauty. We all recognize truth, goodness, and beauty as being the things that are worthy in the world, the things that we are seeking after. And the God that Jesus reveals is the God of truth, goodness, and beauty. Any other God that you hold in your minds actually is not the God of Jesus. It's an idol. And so we want to filter everything, and you can use this every time you're doing Bible study, reading scripture, look for truth, goodness, and beauty. 
And there you will find the reality of who God is. And so we're going to do this a little bit differently today. Since we're talking about a different perspective, we're going to have kind of a, a different kind of interaction this morning. Is that okay? It's going to be hard, I can tell, except for Jillian. She's right with me. Because here's the point. What I want us to concentrate on today is hearing rather than seeing. There's no more slides. So hopefully you wrote down the verse, you got the verse deep in your heart. We're not going to do any. You know, we are bombarded with images, aren't we? We are always in front of our screens. We have picture after picture after picture after picture flowing before our eyes. And you know the, what it costs? It costs us our imagination. We don't have to imagine anything anymore because we have a picture. We have a representation. But God is asking us to reimagine. And so we're going to use imagination rather than images. And we're going to have a conversation rather than a lecture. Say amen. And what I'm going to do is I'm also going to speak more from my heart this morning than I am from my notes. And so here's the warning. If it all goes horribly wrong, then I'll go back to the notes or we'll just all take a nap and have a nice refreshing 20 minutes and we can say we got something out of church, right? I don't think, there you go. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But let's pray, just in case. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the privilege of hearing your voice. We thank you that you have spoken in word and by your spirit that we may know you, that we may know ourselves. And so we come to you this morning and ask you to open the eyes of our hearts to see you as you really are. We ask, Lord, that as we talk about perspective, you would show us the weaknesses in our perspectives, the incongruity in the way we think. We ask that you would show us that your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, but yours are beautiful, and yours are true, and yours are good. And we ask that you would change our hearts in this conversation today, helping us to trust, helping us to see you more clearly than we ever have, and to see everything else through the clarity of you. And we ask it in confidence because we know that's your will for us in Jesus Christ. So we ask it in his name. Amen. So let me ask you, who's recently had an eye exam? Okay? Fun, isn't it? Get to put the, the dilation in and put that great big, you know, like looking into the light, like, now I should have done that. <laughs> but you know, you know, in the eye exam, before you get to the doctor who's actually checking on the health of your eye, they check the function of your eye, right? And they put you in front of that machine that has all the dials and all the lenses, and they keep twisting and turning them. For a prize, who knows what that machine's called? Yeah. <laughs> it's called a four-opter. There's a piece of worthless trivia for you this morning. Four opter. And what they're doing, of course, is checking. They'll say, is this better here or is it better there? And when we were little, our eye doctor, whoever was working in the office, had this sing-song way of doing that. They go, better here, better there, better here, better there. But they're checking the function of your eye. They're checking your perspective to help you see things more clearly. And all my life, I have had fantastic vision until I got old. And now I need these things. If I want to have a better perspective, 
I have to put these on. And the reason you usually see me up here without them has nothing to do with pride. Because actually, I've heard people say, you look quite distinguished glasses on. But it has to do more with the fact that now that I have these on, I can read this real clearly, and I can't tell who you are. <laughs> so it's two different perspectives, but it helps. And this is kind of an illustration of what God is talking about when he says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways and thoughts, my perspective higher than your perspective. So it's like... We have 2400 vision, and God's saying he has 2010 vision. And so we need to have our perspective challenged. We need to have our perspective changed. See, God's perspective is bigger because our perspective as a human is limited. Now let's think about this for a second. And I do want a feedback. I do want you to talk to me. What are some of the problems? What are some of the limitations in our human perspectives? Let's think about our thoughts first. Think about the way we think as human beings. Well, first off, the biggest problem is we are finite, right? We have finite understanding, and what we're trying to grasp is infinite, the nature of God. So how can a finite mind grasp the infinite nature of God? That's the illustration of the boxes. That's what it means. We can't. Our brains are limited, some more limited than others. But the second thing about human thought is we are wired for self-preservation. Our thoughts are constantly tapping into the idea of me, the idea of self. What's good for me? What's protecting me? What do I need? All of those things are wiring constantly in this me-first kind of mentality. We also have what's called a zero-sum mentality, or sometimes called a scarcity mentality. We think as human beings that the resources are limited and that I must get my share. That if I don't look out for myself, who's going to look out for me? Right? So there's a limited pie, if you will, and you want your slice. And so we're pre-wired to think that way in our human nature. And so our thoughts begin to influence our actions, begin to influence our behaviors. And there, too, God's ways are nothing like ours because not only do we think about self-preservation, then we begin to act in self-interest. We begin to put ourselves first. We put ourselves at the head of the line. And in doing so, we're automatically walking into a very competitive situation. Our thoughts and our ways become competitive. Competition means what? Division. Again, it's me versus you for that. And violence is the natural outgrowth of the division, isn't it? We're going to start battling over this thing, whatever it is. Because there's only so much, and it's either me or it's you. And all of these things go into making our human nature drive us in a certain way, drive us to a particular behavior. And so you say, so what? That's the way it is. That's what human nature is. 
But don't you know that the glory of God and the grace that he gives us is what enables us to rise from human nature into supernatural nature? We are superhuman when we come into relationship with God. And it's important to recognize and embrace the superiority of God's thoughts and God's ways because actually it is a life and death issue. This isn't just about thinking a different way. It actually is the way of life. Not once, but twice in the book of Proverbs, we hear this verse. There is a way that appears right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. See, when we live by our own perspective, when we're driven by our own thoughts and our own ways, we are actually vulnerable to a deadly deception. Deadly deception. So this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to look at two examples of contrasting perspectives in Scripture, and I want to talk about some takeaways that would make us ponder just to make sure that we are on the right path. Because if there's a way that seems right, but it leads to death, then that should perk our ears and make us say, hey, I want to make sure that's not my way. I want to make sure that's not my path. So first, let's return to the place Alex led us to last week. We're going to go back to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi. Any of that ring a bell for you that were here last week? Say yes. Every preacher wants to know you're listening. And he began at verse 13, and just to quickly summarize what he talked about, Jesus has gathered his disciples away from the crowds, away from Jerusalem, away from the hubbub of the religious headquarters and the political headquarters, up in this area of Caesarea Philippi, in the far north of Israel, at the foot of Mount Hermon, a place where there is a lot of pagan influence. And he says to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And he turns and he puts it right on them and he says, let me hear your thoughts. Who do you say the Son of Man is? And Peter, good old Peter, the first to jump in, raises his hand and says, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Ding, ding. Jesus says, you are blessed, Peter. Because my Father in heaven has revealed that to you. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's just like he was on a game show, right? He spun the big wheel and got the maybe big prize. So tell me how you're feeling if you're Peter at that point. No, literally, tell me how you're feeling if you're Peter. Hmm? Got to be loud top of the world, right? I mean, if the Son of God, if Jesus points you out and says, good job, excellent, you're going to feel pretty good, right? Oh, if only the story ever ended there, which is pretty much the case of always with Peter, right? But it doesn't. It goes on to say this as we move into verse 21. It says, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that he had to go to Jerusalem, and he told them what would happen to him there. He would suffer at the hands of the leaders and the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, and then he would be raised on the third day. And it says this, Peter took him aside and corrected him. 
Excuse me, God. Heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. In other words, your perspective is not God's perspective. You might be well-intentioned. You might be acting like a friend in this situation, but you're actually causing me problems. Get away from me, Satan. Not feeling on top of the world there, is he? It's not a good thing for God to call you Satan, just in case you weren't sure of that. You are seeing things from a human point of view, not from God's. See, it's just like in the temptation narrative when the Satan came to Jesus and he said, I, I'm in charge of all these kingdoms of the world and I'll give them to you if you just bow down to me. You know what that is? It's a shortcut. Jesus was already going to get all the kingdoms of the world. He has gotten all the kingdoms of the world, but it came through the cross. Craig Keener, who's a Bible scholar, says the kingdom without the cross is still a temptation, and it's still a satanic message. That's why God's perspective is so important. Because our human nature, our human perspective says, let's take the easy way. Let's take the convenient way. Let's take the less messy way. But God says, let's take the cross way. Because listen to what he says. He says, Jesus said to the disciples, if any of you want to be my follower, if you want to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition. You must shoulder your cross and follow me. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. That's the path that leads to death. But if you give up your life for me, then you will find true life. So that's the question. Are we going to be followers of Jesus or are we going to be followers of self? See, one of the key issues when we're talking about perspective is our identity. Our identity flows from our perspective. The way we see things starts with the way we see ourselves, doesn't it? It begins with here in me here. Our self-worth, the worth of other people, is all determined by the way we see things. And God's thoughts and God's ways, here's the difference. They always lean into the direction of love and they always lead us to life. But human thoughts and human ways always lean in the way of judgment of ourselves or of others. And they always lead to death. How do I know the difference? How can I tell? Greg Boyd says this. He says, love is ascribing to others worth at a cost to yourself. Judgment is ascribing worth to yourself at a cost to others. That's good. You want me to say that again? Love is ascribing worth to others at a cost to yourself. Judgment is ascribing worth to yourself at a cost to others. You don't get anything else today. Take that with you. But see, we can see all this play out very clearly in the familiar story Jesus shared, which we 
misname the prodigal son. Because you know the prodigal son's not about the younger son at all, really. The story is really about the older son. And I'll show that in just a second. But I, I love this. This is my favorite story in the Bible. Do you ever see those videos or films of people who live in far distant lands who don't have the Bibles and all of a sudden there's a Bible delivery and like one Bible and they all rip out a page and they, you know, everybody wants a piece of it because they're so hungry for the word of God. If that ever comes to pass here, I'm grabbing Luke 15. That's mine. Stay away. Because I bet you that I could preach a different sermon for an entire year just based on the story of the prodigal son. It is so rich. It is so deep. There is so much there. To me, it teaches absolutely everything we need to know about God, everything we need to know about humanity, and everything we need to know about the relationship in between us. And the prodigal son story, or let's call him the lost son, is really the third parable in a series that come there. And we kind of skip over the first two, which is the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, both of which are designed to help us understand how God rejoices when people who are lost, when things who are lost are returned or found. Meaning when sinners repent, when people who are far from God turn back to God, that makes God really, really happy. And that's what these are about. And the motivation for these parables is this. It says, Pharisees and teachers of the religious law are complaining to Jesus that he's associating with sinful people. Like tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus is out there on the margins with the people nobody else wants to have anything to do with, especially the religious people, the stuck-up self-righteous people. Not only associating with, he's having dinner with them. That's, oh. And so he tells them this story. And I want you to hear this story with fresh ears this morning. That's why I'm not putting the verses up. Open your ears and use your imagination because I want you to step into this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now instead of waiting until you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and took a trip to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money on wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs. The boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired men have enough food to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired man. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get him a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And, and kill the calf that we have been fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Well, your brother is back, he was told, and your father's killed the calf we were fattening and has prepared a great feast. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older son was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I have worked hard for you, and I have never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the finest calf we have. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you and I are very close and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So here's where I want your help. Let's talk about the relational perspectives in this story. Let's start with this. How does the younger son see the father? kind of wishes he was already dead, right? I mean, to say, give me your inheritance in that culture means you're as good as dead to me. Right? You think he sees him perhaps as somebody who's limiting him. <laughs> Growing up on this provincial farm and all I got to do is work, 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 and I want to go out and find myself. You're an obstacle to me. I'm going to get out of here. But you also happen to be the one who has money, so come across. Very selfish, isn't it? Very self-focused, very self-interested. How do you think the younger son sees the older brother at that point? <laughs> Goody two-shoes, right? Mr. Brown knows. Oh, you just do what dad, dad just likes you better. There's some animosity there, right? There's some tension in that relationship. But again, that comes because the brother, the younger brother, is living and looking in competition, right? He's got that zero-sum mentality. He's got that scarcity mentality. And his brother represents competition. How do you think the older son sees the younger son? Am I hitting close to home in some of your family dynamics? <laughs> what are some of the ways you think the older brother would describe the younger brother? Brat. Foolish. Ungrateful. 
Yeah. Not a good dynamic there, is there? Is it? So we wouldn't describe this as the perfect functional family, would we? There's some dysfunction going on here. How about this one? How do you think the older son sees the father? He said, what? And, and you what? You gave him what? My dad's an idiot. Did you ever in your life think your dad was an idiot? I love this quote. <laughs> Too close. <laughs> I love this quote by Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, when I was 14, I thought my dad was the stupidest man in the world. When I turned 21, I was amazed at how much he learned in seven years. <laughs> think about that. <laughs> I don't think the older son is real pleased with the father. I think he thinks he's weak. I think he thinks that the younger son's able to manipulate him. Lots and lots of dysfunction. And so we have a messy story. We have the story of a young man in his selfish perspective taking off, going to go find himself. And where does he find himself? There's a way that seems right to a young man, but in the end it leads to a pigsty. In the end it leads to starvation. In the end it leads to selflessness. Notice what it said? When he comes to the end of himself. Aren't you so glad that the grace of God goes all the way to where you come to the end of yourself and meets you there? We sang about the name of Jesus and that every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. How wonderful it is when we can do that willingly then have to get to the end of ourselves. Oh, it's just as powerful, if not more powerful, in the pig's tie. But what heartbreak we could save ourselves. What heartbreak we could save those that love us when we weren't choosing the way that leads to death. And the older son, well, he's just so darn sure of himself. He's so proud of who he is. He keeps all the rules He's just the shining example of what it means to be obedient, what it means to be a good son. But they're all a mess. So now the next question is this. How does the father see the younger son? Does he lean to judgment? He leans to love, right? He loves his son. We can question. We don't really have a lot of information. Jesus isn't really trying to give us a whole picture here as to why he would agree to give his inheritance away. It seems kind of dumb. <laughs> love does dumb stuff sometimes. There's some dumb things people have done out of love for me that I'm very grateful for. Maybe you too. He loves his son. And though his son basically spits in his face and wishes he was dead and goes off and leaves him, he still loves him. 
because Jesus makes it very clear that that father is out there looking for his return. He's not waiting for the son to become properly contrite and come back and issue this apology. Remember the son, he's got his apology worked up. I'll go back and I'll say, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Let me be a slave. Let me be hired on. And he doesn't even get that out when he finally gets to the father, right? He comes to the place where he starts his apology or his whatever it is. And the father won't even let him get it out. He just wraps him up in his love and orders a party. But get this. Don't misunderstand this because the older son does. The party's not for the son. The party's for the father. The party is for the father to celebrate the thing that he wants the most and has longed for the most and has run out on the lane to see every day coming the return of his son, the reestablishment of the relationship. A son who's been prideful is now broken and needs restoration. The father, of course, is God, the representation of the heart of the heavenly father. And so he welcomes him back and he celebrates his return. And how does the father see the older son? Does he lean towards judgment? No. He leans towards love there too. He says, son, come in. Share in my joy. Celebrate with me. Your brother was dead and now is alive again. I bet the older brother's thinking, well, he's good as dead to me. Have some broken relationships where that's the idea in your head, your perspective? Come in and celebrate this. This is great. Our family is being healed. We're being reconciled. We should celebrate that. No way. Why would we celebrate that kind of thinking? Why would we celebrate that kind of disrespectful action? Why would we celebrate that kind of an attitude? We should be condemning that. Sound like a lot of the self-righteousness I'm hearing in the world today. We're stepping on people who are broken. We're stepping on people who have made mistakes. We're casting them aside, exalting ourselves at their expense. That's not the heart of the father. The father loves his two sons, and he wants them in his house together. His perspective is higher than either of the son's perspective. His ways are so much greater than either of the son's ways. He just wants them all together in his house under his care. That's the heart of God. His heart towards you. His heart towards everyone you know. Those that you're in close relationship to, those that you're estranged from, those who think and act the way you think and act, and those who think and act entirely differently than the way you think and act. He's the God over all, the Father of all, who invites us all back into relationship.
because his ways are so much greater than our ways. So here are a couple of questions I want you to sit with for a few minutes this morning. The first is this. Where do I see myself today in this story? Who do I most relate to? Are you like the younger son on a journey to find yourself following the way that seems right to you? If you are, where on that journey are you? Are you just breaking out of the house, excited about the future, excited about this chance to go be you and sow your wild oats or whatever the current modern expression of that is? Are you already in the pigsty? Are you in that place of scarcity? Are you feeding on nothingness, hungry, hopeless? Or have you already come to the end of yourself and you're heading back? You recognize there's a place, a place you once despised that actually represents the best you have ever experienced. And in that place, there is a Father who loves you, not because you do the right things, not because you never hurt him or disappoint him, but who loves you in spite of the things you do, in spite of the disappointments. And he's looking down the lane. Every day he's out there with his eyes on the horizon, hoping to see you arise from that pigsty and head home, ready to embrace you in all your pig stink and ready to exchange those rags, those tattered clothes stained with pig stuff and put a robe, the robe of righteousness of Jesus around you and put the ring which signifies the authority of God on your finger And then throw a feast. Not in your honor, but in his joy. Or do you see yourself today as the older brother? All your life you've tried to obey the rules. All your life you've been obedient. You've, you've, you've tried to do right. And you just can't stand the fact that there are people who don't even try. Not only do they not try, they actually get rewarded sometimes in their disobedience. And that offends your sense of justice. And you see the Father extending mercy, extending forgiveness, extending grace to a brother like that. And you say to yourself, no way, I'm not, I would never celebrate that. And 
And so there's a party going on in the kingdom of God. And you're standing outside in your self-righteousness, missing the whole thing. Where do you see yourself today? The deeper question is this. Do I find my identity in thoughts of certitude or control or superiority? Do those things matter to me? Do I really value that? Is that important in my makeup? And therefore, do I live in the way of judgment of other people who threaten those things? And if so, the last question is this. What has to change in my perspective to really trust, accept, and live in the way of love as a follower of Jesus? I want to suggest to you three things quickly as we wrap up. First is this. Accepting God's bigger perspective requires humility. A humility that forsakes self-reliance. Scripture says, Paul writes this. He says, you know what? Now we see things imperfectly. And everything we know is partial. And it's incomplete. In other words, our perspective isn't big enough. And you know where he writes that? You know where that's found in Scripture? It's in the love chapter. You don't quite get there on the wall plaques that you have and received for your wedding, right? Love is patient, love is kind. But that's where it is. And it's there because it's a reminder that you can't know, you can't see, you can't understand the way God does, but you can embrace the love of God for yourself and you can give the love of God to others. But that takes humility. And we can come to a place of trusting in God's bigger perspective, but that requires faith. A faith that forsakes self-assurance. A faith that goes beyond your ability and your way of seeing things. Scripture says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That means there's no room in your heart for trusting yourself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding put the word perspective there in all your ways acknowledge him and he will what make your way straight humility faith and finally living in God's bigger perspective requires love that forsakes self-righteousness the father in that story is the father of grace the father of reconciliation the father of mercy he has every right to judge both the younger son and the older son 
and tell them neither one belongs in his house. But that's not what he does. And you know why? Because God reveals to us this important truth. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Say that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Aren't you glad that's true in your life? We're so quick to receive it. We want mercy. But we want to hang on to the ability to judge others. It's okay, you can admit that, because that is a 100% human nature thing. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? I'm going to give you the run of the house, God says to Adam and Eve. You can enjoy paradise completely. You can eat of the tree of life forever. The only thing you can't do well, you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know what the knowledge of good and evil is? Judgment. We want the ability to judge. We want the right, as if we ever had a right, to say what's good and what's not good. Whether this person's worthy or that person's not worthy. The master of the house says, you lay that down. You give that up. You trust that in my great big perspective that's higher than the heavens are above the earth, I've got things in hand. You don't need to judge. You need to love. You need to be merciful. Humility, faith, love. That's how we get God's bigger perspective into our own lives. But there's more. Wait, there's more. Help is here. God has given us his Holy Spirit to be able to do that. Because you can't work that up. You can't find that in your own nature. The Holy Spirit is our foropter. <laughs> He's the one who's coming into our minds, into our hearts, and saying, better here, better here, better here, better here. Where do you see love? Where do you see mercy clearer? Where do you find humility? Jesus told us when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Hallelujah. The spirit is here. It's given to every single person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one who transforms us into a new person through the renewing of our minds he challenges our self-focused perspective and he empowers us to think and behave differently than the world does so that we're no longer conforming to the world's behaviors and the world's thinking. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes us like Jesus. And Jesus is the very embodiment of God's bigger, better perspective. If you want to know what it looks like in human form, Look at Jesus. That's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he promises our Heavenly Father will give more and more and more of the Holy Spirit to them that ask. So if that's your desire today, to have more of the Holy Spirit, to be able to gain this bigger perspective that God wants for you, 
I'm going to ask you to stand and receive the benediction. Father, we thank you that you are patient and kind, that you are long-suffering and merciful to us, your children. We thank you, Lord, that through our rebellious natures or our self-righteous attitudes, you continue to love us and not forsake us. Sometimes we must taste the consequences of our decisions and our perspectives. But you're always there looking down the lane, waiting for us to come to the end of ourselves with open arms, ready to wrap us in your love and celebrate our new life. And the amazing thing about the parable of the prodigal son, Lord, is that it doesn't tell us how it works out. It doesn't tell us how it ends. We're left with a picture of a son inside having a celebration and a son outside refusing to come in. We don't know what happens the next day when the younger son gets up and finds himself in a circumstance that he had been in previously that he despised. Does he leave again? Does he stay for a while and then get tired of it and leave again? Does the older son ever have his heart broken enough to come in and join the celebration, to join in the father's joy? We don't know. And the reason, Lord, I believe you did that is because our stories are not finished either. But we stand on the promise today that you said you would give us your spirit and you would guide us into all truth, the truth of your bigger, better perspective. And so, Lord, we just ask, right now, I ask you to release that spirit in full measure upon the people of Generation Church. I ask you to move in every heart, challenge every attitude. Help us to recognize the limitations of our thoughts and our ways. And give us the mind of Christ. Give us the fullness of your spirit to change us from what we are today into the likeness of Jesus. And send us out these doors right now, God, as people of humility, as people of faith, as people of love, that interact with everyone that we meet in our homes, in our workplaces, wherever we go, with a perspective that matches the heart of our Heavenly Father so that we may give you all glory and all honor through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together we say, Amen.